it is really good to just uh, to be back with you guys and, and, and having the opportunity to share God's word. And I, and I think it was probably around three weeks ago, I said to, to Tony, I just woke up the one morning and there was this verse upon my heart and um, I, I never realized how, how vital the verse is or how vital the topic is uh, until I started to start meditating upon it and, and asking God to, to really you know, speak to me about it. So, so the topic, of, if I can label this message, it's, it's a call to joy. A call to joy. And I, um, I spoke to Leroy this week. I said it, it was difficult for me because every time I, I start studying the topic, I would go down these rabbit holes and then uh, a 30-minute preach turned into a three-hour preach. And um, although I believe you guys love me, I don't think I've got that, <laughs> that amount of grace. So, um, so I just want to give a little bit of an outline of what I want to try and do here today, what I believe God has called me to, to teach on, um, is, first of all, I, I would like to just show you how vital joy is. I want to answer that question first. And then secondly, um, I want to try and give the answer, or trying to define uh, what is biblical joy. And after that, we will look at what's the difference between joy and happiness, because there's a massive difference. And then fourthly, where I would love us to land is how do we get to joy? So with all that being said, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go to uh, chapter 1 and 2, although, or, well, verse 1 and 2. Uh, verse 1, I'm actually just reading to give a little bit of context, but verse 2 is where uh, we will do a bulk of the work. Okay, so I'm going to read first. Is it already up? Praise the Lord. Thank you very much, AV team. Anushka, you got me. Thank you very much. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I love verse 2, that for the joy set before him, one of the characteristics or one of the things that Jesus needed to embrace the cross is future joy. It's future joy. And I remember when I was reading this, I was just thinking in my own prayer life, how often do I pray for joy? It's non-existent, to be very honest. Like a lot of times in my own prayer life, I pray a lot for zeal. I pray, Lord, let I have a zeal for your church. I have a zeal for your, for your word. I have a, a love for your people, a love for you, God. But it was something like God reminding me or showing me that, that son, you, you need joy. <laughs> And I'm not saying that I'm without joy, but it is something that we need to actually really be serious about. It, it's not something that we think is just sprinkled on. It's vital for us as believers. And I was just thinking of Jesus. You know, when we talk about the cross, it is, it's so easy for us to miss how severe the cross was for Jesus. And, and if you can just turn to, to Matthew 26, verse 37 to 38. This is a very well-known narrative in the life of Jesus. It's, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And it reads as, as follows, it says, and taking, this is Jesus, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, Jesus falls on his face and he prays, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it was, what, what this scripture, what Hebrews 2, or Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us about this scenario, about what was going on in the heart of Jesus, 
it is not just that Jesus embraced the cross because he loved God and wanted to be obedient to God. That is true. It's not just that Jesus loved us and, 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 and he wanted us to be part of him. No, it was that there's a future joy. What helped Jesus through Gethsemane to go to the cross is there was a future joy set before him. So if it was vital for Jesus to reach his calling, he needed joy. We, we, we have no hope if we don't have joy. If we don't have this perspective of a future joy, if we don't cling to, Lord, that there is a future joy before me, at the end of the day, what will happen is we won't reach our calling. We won't reach our purpose. It is vital. Joy is vital for the Christian believer. So as Jesus was laying there before his father, praying, Lord, remove this cup from me, God started reminding him, son, there's a future joy. There's a future joy. You need to trust me in this. You need to have faith in this. There's a future joy in front of us. And that is true for every believer in the house. It's a future joy for us. Another scenario, another story, a narrative in the Bible that is very important when it comes to joy. Uh, this is maybe a little bit dark, but we're going to have to go there. Uh, how many of you know the, the King David? How many of you know the story of King David and Bathsheba? So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I, I, I do want to just paint the picture of what happened. So, so King David was... Uh, a shepherd boy and God makes him a king. I think any of us would sign up for that. If that is the calling God, I, I'm not going to look after sheep anymore. I'm going to be a king. Sign me up. That's easy. So he becomes king and the Bible would teach us that uh, in the springtime there was a time where the kings had to go and wage war. So David goes and he grabs some of his men. Joab was one of them. And he sends all of them and he chooses comfort of the palace and he sends them and says, you know what? I'm king. I'll stay. You go. And he stays, and one faithful afternoon, he decides he's going to walk on the rooftop. He's going to walk on his roof of his palace. And while he's up there, he's looking over the kingdoms, he sees this woman. The Bible describes her as very beautiful, so that's special. And David goes, and he calls two of his servants, and he says, listen here, who's that woman? And they say to David, David, that's, that's Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And David as the king that's supposed to serve his people and lead his people and love his people, uses his authority and his position as king and says, go call that woman. And he sleeps with her and he impregnates her. And as soon as he hears this, this, this news coming from Bathsheba that she is now with child, he knows that he's going to be outed. He knows that everybody is going to hear that David made a mistake. So he does what anybody else will do and he tries to cover it up. So he says to Joab, send Uriah back home. He needs to come back home in the hope that Uriah would come back to his house, clean himself up, eat and sleep with his wife, and everything would be covered. But Uriah is a noble man, the honorable man. So he comes back and he says to David, no, I can't, I can't sleep in my house. We're still, we're still at war. There's still countrymen suffering. There's still people waging war. I'm, I, I refuse to partake of any pleasures while I know my other brothers are struggling and fighting this fight. Honorable man. And he sleeps outside his house, lest he be tempted. Honorable man. And you would think that David, seeing this, comes to his senses, but no. He says to Uriah the next day, Uriah, you know what? I want you to eat with me. And he makes Uriah drunk, hoping that as soon as there's enough alcohol in Uriah's system that Uriah will let go of his nobility and his morals and he would go and sleep with his wife, which is not sinful for Uriah. It's just Uriah is so honorable 
He wants to suffer with his people. But Uriah again gets drunk and decides, I'll rather sleep on the couch. I'm not going close to my house. So David says, okay, well, there's only one thing left to do. Uriah needs to die. Because this is a man that I saw, saw God take him from a shepherd to a palace. In a moment, like, all human life doesn't make sense to me anymore. What's more important is that my image is protected. And he sends Uriah with a letter of death. Mark for Joab. So Uriah won't open it. Sent out to Joab. Says, what needs to happen is, in the battle, take Uriah, put him on the front line. And as soon as the war starts, pull back the troops a little bit. So that Uriah dies. And it happens. And Uriah dies. Well, the Bible would tell us that when Bathsheba heard this news, she wept. She cried, she loved her husband. David, to cover his tracks, now marries Bathsheba. So everything looks good. Everything looks right. But we serve a God that sees. sees a, we serve a God that loves us enough to even if we build the walls around our hearts so high, he'll come and tear them down. So God raises up Nathan, a prophet, and he sends Nathan to David with a message like this. David, so Nathan goes to David and he says to him, David, there's, there's a rich man, has a lot of sheep. And this rich man looks over and he sees his neighbor has one sheep, but this man really loves the sheep. This sheep is almost like a pet. It stays in the house and everybody loves the pet. And this rich man goes and takes that sheep and he kills it. And David, inside of himself, goes mental. How can such unrighteousness happen in his kingdom? And he says, this man must die. The prophet Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man, David. And what is crazy for me is, David writes Psalm 51, which is a very well-known verse in the Bible. He writes Psalm 51 in response to repenting before God. If you can just put up Psalm 51, verse 12, look at what David says. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And for me, like the first time I read it, it didn't make sense. I mean, for me, if I struggled with lust or whatever, I, I, I fell into that sort of stuff. The thing I would pray is, Lord, deliver me of lust. Lord, deliver me of coveting something that doesn't belong to me. Lord, forgive me maybe for anger and having a murderous heart. But David says, no, 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 God, you know what? In essence, why I did what I did is because I lost joy. I lost joy in the Lord. I lost joy. I lost joy that God is my Lord. I lost joy that God is, is, is everything. His presence is more valuable to me. And as soon as I lose that, it gets dark. Joy is vital for believers. Because it keeps us in tracks and it protects us from sin. As soon as we start losing joy, we will run after things trying to get what only God can give us. We will run after shallow pools of things that will entertain our flesh and we will lose what is most precious, what only God can give, joy. So, joy is vital. Hopefully you get it by now. If you're not, we need to read the Bible more. I would like to define joy, and, and, and this was hard for me to, to be very honest, so I just did what everybody else does, and I went to John Piper. I'm just joking. <laughs> no, but he, he gave a definition of joy, which makes a lot of sense for me, and, and I really do think it's important that we grasp that. It. So John Piper defines joy as this. He says, joy is a good feeling or emotion in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Jesus in the Word and in the world. 
just going to read that again because it's a little bit false. So joy can be defined as biblical joy. It is a good feeling or emotion in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as it causes us to see the beauty of Jesus in the Word and in the world. So I remember preparing this. Um, I didn't want to make that connection with joy as a feeling. I didn't want to make that feeling. Like, I didn't want to make that connection. I, I, I did everything inside of me, and then John Piper says it's an emotion, so I can't really argue with him because he really did study theology. Um, but it is. And, and the big thing that makes emotions for us, uh, especially men, scary is it's something that you can't control. It's a reaction. So if, if, I can, if I can explain it like this, if you go to the Kruger National Park because you're like Tony and you like camping, which is weird for me, and you're camping at night and you're all alone and in the middle of the night you hear this massive roar. You put on your light and you, have, you see the silhouette of a massive lion and he looks angry and he looks hungry and he's standing outside your tent. Your response is you're afraid. You don't sit and say, okay, this is the reality of what I'm facing. I have a thin little bit of canvas between me and this lion. He's hungry, he's angry, he's an apex predator. So what I choose is, I'm going to choose to be afraid. No, you're just afraid. It's a reaction. That's what emotion is. And that's the same for joy. And what makes that difficult for us, it means we can't control it always. And what makes it very difficult for us as believers is, the Bible commands us to have certain emotions in response to God. God says, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. <laughs> like, it's hard. Again, I say rejoice. God says, do not be anxious of anything, but in everything, pray. Cause your cares upon God. So what, what is difficult for us is, God, sometimes you require me to do something that I actually don't have control over. And I love this quote from St. Augustine. He said this, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. I'm going to read that again because two people got it. You guys are, <laughs> I'm worried about you. Father, command what you will and grant what you command. We are in desperate need of God. You can't rely. Have, how many of you have ever tried the, um, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will, I will be glad. Uh, every day you just kind of like wake up. No, it doesn't happen. You can't just choose to be, to you have joy. It's not as easy. See, what that scripture says is as you view God and as you meditate upon God and as the revelation of who God is forms in your heart, your response is joy. Your response is gladness. Your response is, Lord, I'm secure. I don't have to be afraid because the sovereign God of the universe is the one that says he loves me. We can't. And what, what is important to me is at the end of the day, we need to understand that not only is joy is emotion and it's a feeling, and it's in the soul. So if I just walk around like this, Pierre, what are you doing? I have joy. It's weird, guys, weird. But I do think we sometimes pretend that it's not a body reaction. It is, it is not a fleshly thing that we can conjure up. Joy comes deep within, and it has sometimes an outward expression. So it is like a moment like this where Tony prays and I've meditated upon the goodness of God to, to restore me. Joy, it wasn't, I wasn't sad here. It's joy. 
fills my eyes and I cry, but it's a deep revelation within and has an outward expression. We try and just act like the outward expression without experiencing the true revelation. It is an experience within that has an outward expression. So joy is in the soul, then joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 would teach us it's the fruit of the Spirit. So what it means is, no Holy Spirit, no joy. It's as easy as that. And that's why happiness and joy can't sit around the same table. Because you can go around the world and you can, um, like if I get a new set of golf stocks now, I really need it because I'm bad. Uh, if I get that now, I'll have happiness. And it doesn't make happiness sinful. But it's not joy. And what is scary, more and more these days, we're hearing preaching where people want to try and get you to follow Jesus so that you can be happy. Follow Jesus and you'll just receive everything you want. I'm like, well, Jesus actually promises that we'll have trials and tribulations. And then he says, but be of good cheer. Have joy when your faith is tested. So we need a proper balance of these things. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not a man-made thing. No Holy Spirit means no joy. And what I love is, I think a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we, we get stuck on two things. Usually. It's a lot, of, a lot of times about spiritual gifts, which is awesome. The Bible clearly teaches us desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Or we'll focus on the fruits, which is good. I'm talking one of the fruits just now. But one of the things I love about the Holy Spirit, what the Bible teaches us, is that the Holy Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are the sons and the daughters of God, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God gave His Spirit, and the Spirit, what it does in you the whole day is, you're a son and a daughter of God. I just failed. You're a son and a daughter of God. No, but I messed up. You're a son and a daughter of God. He's not giving up on you. Let's push forward. We need the Holy Spirit. And that's what He says. And, and I love it. It reveals um, it reveals. Um, Joy or reveals Jesus to us in the Word and in the world. And what I mean with the Word is a lot of times you will face things in your life, harsh realities of the broken world that we live in that contradicts God's Word. I love one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 44 where the sons of Korah, they, they start this beautiful Psalm of how God delivered Israel and how they heard these stories. And then all of a sudden it takes a very dark turn and he says, why sleep with thou, O Lord? I remember reading that, and I'm like, how can God allow that in his holy word? It didn't make sense to me. Like, I would blot it out. But if I'm honest, in my Christian walk, I've been a Christian now about 14, 15 years. There's been times where it's like, Lord, everything in this world shouts to me that you don't love me. This is not going to end well, and I'm scared. But it was as I meditated more on the gospel, reading more of the word, that it was like, it doesn't matter what my circumstances say. If the word says God loves me, he loves me. If the, if the word is honest, how scary is it that David's story is in the Bible? Do you think it makes us look good as Christians? How, here's this man that really loved God, but he committed adultery and he killed a man. But he loves Jesus. God is very open and honest about how fragile we are. How broken we are. And his answer to it is Christ on the cross. Sends his son. He says, I'll demonstrate how much I love you. So he reveals Jesus to us through the word. I love when, when Dudu was 
preaching the other day. He said there's these scriptures, and he would just take it for himself. So apparently, he's a prophet to the nation. <laughs> Thought people need to lay hands to get that, but whatever. He just made it his. But it's good. But you need that, guys. There's scriptures. Like I, I promise you, there's scriptures that I read that, as I read it, it just resonate with my heart. And I'm God, irrespective of what's going on, then God, I'm going to believe that this is true of you. I'm going to believe that this is what you have for me. And I sit there. And then the other thing is, He reveals. Uh, Jesus to us through the world. And what I mean is, I'm not talking about the world out there, I'm talking a lot about the world in here. One of the greatest callings God places us as, as believers is to go and be Jesus to other people. Show them love. Show them mercy. Show them that you care. And I wonder how many of us, this is just not enough of a priority for us. You know why I'm in church today? Because people loved me. There were people that loved me enough to tell me, Pierre, you're not really a believer. There's people that in my midst of my storms loved me enough and said, we'll walk this out with you. Rebuked me, loved me, cared for me. Takes a lot of different shapes of love if you really go after it. But it was within church. Now that calls upon us, that weights upon us. Does that make sense? So joy is different. So let's talk about the little brother. So... In the Oxford Dictionary, if you, you look up uh, the definition of joy, they actually describe joy as a greater happiness, which is rubbish. <laughs> no other way of saying it. Um, if all of us, just for a moment, entertain me. All of us have had certain things that we were so excited about that if we could get them, we would experience happiness. And you don't even know where that stuff is anymore. So I'll give you a very easy example. For me, it's a Nokia 3310. <laughs> don't know where that thing is. But I remember a time where I would spend endless nights browsing where I can finally get one to afford. And it's going to just change my life. If I have this little phone, the white one especially, that was the cooler one. That was a little bit of a lighter version. I'm revealing my age here and some of you too. <laughs> Tony's like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know where that phone is anymore. Yeah, these guys are like, what's the Nokia? It's at one stage before Apple. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even know where that thing is anymore. And the, the big thing is, like I said, happiness necessary isn't sinful. I want to be happy. I have a beautiful wife. I want to be happy with her. But it's when you start compromising joy for happiness where it ends poorly. Because if you pursue happiness, you will move from kiddie pool to kiddie pool, shallow waters to shallow waters, instead of going to the ocean which God calls you to. Hallelujah. Happiness is cheap. It's cheap. It can be bought. Joy you can't buy. Happiness you can buy. Buy me nice shoes now. I'll be happy. I'll receive it. So if you feel that calling, a new TV, whatever the case may be. It will produce happiness, but the reality is happiness will fail you because it cannot stand the test of time and it cannot carry the weight to sustain your soul. So we can't pursue it. Can't, we can't make our lives focused on it. Uh, if I can just give you a very practical application in the Bible because at this stage it's me saying things. Let's try and anchor it in the Word. If you can put up Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 40 to 41. So just to give you a little bit of background, I wrote here in yellow, give a bit of background. So let's do that. So um, 
Pentecost has happened. The apostles go out. Great boldness falls upon them. They're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. This is awesome. The religious leaders are freaking out because people are leaving Judaism and moving into Christianity, and now their numbers are dwindling. And if you know anything about power, there is power in numbers. If you have enough people, whether you stand for the wrong thing or the right thing, as long as you have numbers, you have a voice. So they're getting worried. So what they do is they, they lock these guys up, they throw them in prison, God's good, and delivers them from prison. And guess what they do? They go back to the temple to preach even more. That's weird for me. Like if you lock me up, I'm going to be like, okay, Jesus is sending me a sign, I should stop doing this. But not the apostles. Filled with boldness, they go back to the same temple, they preach even more. The Bible says that a lot of people were healed. So the leaders call the, the really very serious leader Sanhedrin, and they put them in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin actually wants to deliver them up for death. They want to kill them because they're jealous. And the apostles, luckily, in that, in that midst of the meeting, one guy stands up and says, listen here, guys, there has been people before that started religious groups and that sort of stuff. Let's not freak out. If this is God, it will sustain. If it's not God, it will fade. We are 3,000 years or yeah, 2,000 years later. It's still here. Oopsie. So they say, okay, let's not kill him. This is what happens. So it says, and when they called the apostles, so they called them back, and then they beat them and charged them. And look at their response after receiving this beautiful beating. Then they left the princes of the council rejoicing that they may be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And I love that. See, what happiness asks is what about me? Where joy asks, how do I get more of him? It's two complete different things. See, happiness is what makes me comfortable, what gives me more pleasure. Where the joy is deeply rooted. It says, God, how do I get more of you? How do I get deeper, God? Look at there. Look at the evidence of, of joy in their lives. It transcends difficult circumstances. It transcends harsh reality. Joy sustains. Joy is strength. I love it when um, something that uh, Lindsay actually shared with Marissa, that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Joy is strength. Joy is strength. So how do we get to joy? It's a million-dollar question. So joy, I, I promise you, I, I wish I could do a three-week series on joy because the more I'm studying it, the more I'm just seeing so many different aspects of joy. Um, but I love this in, in John 15 from verse 9 to 11. This is the one I chose. It's not the only way, but there's a lot of truth here for me. So it says in verse 9, this is Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the first thing to get to joy is you need to understand how much God loves you. Uh, myself and Ryan and, and Dan, we're busy studying uh, Romans. I said to them, one of the things that, that stood out to me is uh, Romans 1, Paul's writing to believers. Some are doing well, some are doing terrible. But he wants to give them the same thing, the gospel. So even for those that are doing well, he says, you know what you need? You need more gospel. 
you need to, you'll see how many times address, Paul addresses his letters and he says, I pray that you will grow in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I wish that you could grow in more understanding how much God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And it is, it, it is something that flies against us. We so easily just want to try and move away from the love of God. It's too simple for us. I grasp it. If you really grasp that the God of the universe loves you, that he formed you, before creating anything, that he had a plan for you, guess what? You'll have a lot of joy. Because you know you're safe. He's sovereign over you. So we need to go back. God loves us. Jesus said, before you can, God loves you. God loves you. And then he links love and joy, well, love with, a, with, with something that we struggle with. And, and I love, Tony was preaching on the law about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. How are we measuring ourselves against the law? But here Jesus says, keep my commandments. See, the commandments of God is to lead us into joy. It is given to us to lead us into joy. God created marriage. God created relationships. God created sex. God created everything. He knows how it works. And how he wants it to work, he writes commands to say, do it this way and you will have joy. But see, we, we don't want to do that. We want to do it our way. And then we wonder why we struggle, why we don't have joy. The commandment of God is to lead us to joy. Now, let me say this. You're not going to keep those commandments perfectly. That's the whole point of the cross. It was this very public declaration that you will fall short, and I will fall short. But you get up, and you try again. You get up, and you just try again. God, I know this is what you command me to do. I'm not going to sacrifice the commandments Cut my flesh deeper. Help me, Lord. Help me grow more that this is good for me. I wonder how many of us don't want to follow the commandments of God because we don't think it's good. So when God says no fornication, we're like, but Lord, it's fun. It's good. I'm enjoying it. It's like, no, it's terrible. It's not healthy for you. The commandments of God lead us to joy. We can't punt on those things. We can't throw it away. Grab onto those things. And then it says, the things that I've spoken to you that you may, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So when Jesus was talking about that future joy, he was picturing you safe. You safe. I love in Gethsemane that, that Jesus took his strongest three. He took uh, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John and then Peter. These are solid men of God. Really. If they were here now, I would shut up and sit. Because they're serious guys. <laughs> and I love what, what God did. And I really do believe it was a God moment. Jesus would fall down and he would pray. And, and he would get up and he would find his disciples sleeping. And I think it was this very public way of, of God showing them. They'll never be able to do this. Nobody else can carry that cross. If you don't carry this cross, they're dead. Jesus would strengthen himself again. Very public display. You're not going to get it perfect. Jesus says, come and fill this joy. So I would like to, to land with this or, or, or speak to three people. Um, maybe you're a Christian and you're in Gethsemane right now. Life is hard. And you're scared what lies ahead. 
you were scared for what you were facing. And everything inside of you says, I can't trust God. It's like the disciples when they were going over the ocean and the storm came. What's the first thing they said to Jesus? Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus screams in this moment. I love Jesus knows what it is to be overwhelmed with the harsh reality of life. Jesus knew the suffering that he was going to endure. Jesus knew that he was going to be forsaken by the Father so that he could purchase a way for us. So maybe it's your Gethsemane season. Things are dark and things are hard. What Jesus calls you to is a future joy. Jesus calls you to is look above. Don't look at this broken world. God is very open and honest that the time on earth is very limited. It feels very long for us. Very limited. And he will return and heaven will be there for us. And you know what's the best part of heaven? God's going to be there. God's going to be there. Wrestle this out. Life is not easy. I was speaking at a community a month, a few months ago, and I remember Dan was there. I said to them, describe Christianity. You know, they said very spiritual good things. I think Dan said, it's hard, and I was like, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> amen, hallelujah. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to turn the cheek. It's not always easy to bless your enemies. It's not always easy to forgive. It's not always easy to sacrifice things that, that feel so right, but it's robbing you from Jesus. Have a future joy. Or maybe you're the believer, the second person I want to speak to is, if you look at your year, it was marked by compromise. It's marked by compromise. You just don't have that same fire. You don't have that same zeal like you had in the beginning. David was a man that loved God, saw God's hand. While he's walking on the roof, it's actually a testimony of where God took him from and placed him. And even in that space, he failed to see God's goodness. And he chooses instant gratification instead of joy. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling. And you have said the prayers, Lord, deliver me from lust. Lord, deliver me from whatever the thing is that you struggle with. What I love about Psalm 51, God, David owned his sin. He said, Lord, I've against you and you only have I sinned. He owned his sin. He's like, Lord, I failed. Forgive me. Guess what God did? Forgave him. God just forgave David. How ridiculous is that? I'm saying that with a lot of reverence. Like David killed lions and stuff, so one day when I meet him, I don't want to. <laughs> God forgave him. Because he truly repented. Lord, I can't believe I messed up. Lord, I lost joy. Maybe that's your prayer. Maybe, maybe joyful. Just, just spending time with God, spending time in prayers has become hard for you. My prayer is, my hope for you is, just say, Lord, restore. Restore joy. God, I can't do it in and of myself. I need you to do this in me. I need you to reignite the fire in my heart. I need you to reignite a hunger for your word. I need you to reignite that I see others higher than I see myself, serve others better than I serve myself, love others better than I love myself. Only God can do that. And then maybe for the third person. You're in that space where everything is good. You've got joy. 
got happiness. You're doing your part. Hold on to joy. Hold on to joy. Like I said, it was something I didn't even realize that I never prayed for joy. Never seeking joy. <laughs> I need it. It is vital. Say, Lord, help me to see you as my fountain of joy. Help me to swim in the ocean of joy. Let me never start walking to these little puddles thinking they will somehow sustain me. You need more of Jesus. I need more of Jesus. Does that make sense?